and we're back. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Cyber Guys podcast. It's been 84 years. It has it has been a little bit. We took a bit of a brief hiatus. Some things look different. I'm in the middle of moving offices. I got a haircut. Things look a little bit different. But nevertheless, in today's episode, we sat down with a special guest who gave us some insights on the application of cybersecurity in the international realm. But before we get to that, I want to make sure we go through a couple things really quick. If you like our episodes, if you're coming back, double check, make sure you are subscribed. Make sure you hit that little ring icon. Make sure you like the episode. And if you're coming here for the first time, welcome. I know you're going to like it. And at the end of the video, if you do like it, make sure you go ahead and subscribe and hit that like button. Now that that's out of the way, let's jump into it. I'm absolutely thrilled that we have joining us today, Monica Price. Uh, she been work, she's been working in the inter international community for many years doing cybersecurity uh, at the World Bank and has really built up a clientele of international customers. So she has a lot of insight into some of the issues and the hurdles on doing what we do, uh, but with the various different regulatory frameworks and international law and, and, and the local characteristics. So let's just give a warm cyber guys welcome to Monica Price. Monica, so glad to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Guys. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you. I'm really excited. All right. So um, I gave a little quick blurb, but please tell us, how did you get into the international side of uh, cybersecurity? Well, so first I probably have to tell you how I got into cyber, which was by accident. Um, I've always been kind of a techie, but um, I got laid off. I guess this must have been about 25 years or so out of a job that I was doing, doing more like the medical stuff. And someone said, why don't you go and, you know, apply for this job working for the World Bank? And I was like, I don't want to work for a bank. And I think what I knew about that job then was probably, probably very little. I thought it was a bank. So I, um, I started working for them doing help desk tech support. So that's how I started, you know, uh, understanding how technology works and things like that. And I remember some of the first uh, viruses that really hit the World Bank were these boot sector viruses. And I mean, I still have like Melissa on a floppy disk <laughs> back in the day. I have this collection of floppy disks. My, my kids don't have a clue what that is. But um, so I started to be like really intrigued with that. Nobody had virus scanners. It was really new. This is like ancient, you know, ancient history um, before we were like really sophisticated. But what I found that was that the biggest challenge back then and even now is this multicultural sort of organizations where we're talking 20,000 people um, that are spread across the globe and, you know, really barely speak English. They don't varying degrees of understanding how computers work, sometimes in areas where like, you know, their connection to the internet world is like phone, you know what I mean? In some remote area and sometimes satellite. So, um, so I was intrigued by the challenges. I, you know, I'm not really a true white black hat person, not really. I'm probably more like a technocrat. I love technology. So, <laughs> you know, so that's kind of what spurs me. And I and I am excited when security is done well so that we can use technology for what we need to use it for. Um, but so that's kind of how I got started. Um, and I've loved it. I've been at the World Bank, the IMF, the funds. Um, 
I now I've retired since. And so I, I own my own consulting business and I have about 15 um, nonprofit UN-esque clients. So, but it's the same, it's the same types of challenges. Um, and I really, I love it. I enjoy it. It's good stuff. Uh, Scary, but good stuff. That's, that's exciting. You know, it's funny, uh, on the show, we've, we've had some great guests. Uh, one of our guests was uh, someone who worked with the Justice Department prosecuting cyber criminals. Uh, we, we had another, another guest who uh, basically teaches threat hunters how to uh, do packet analysis. Uh, so so we, we like to, t- to approach cybersecurity from all different angles. So when I'm thinking about uh, international cyber, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm really thinking about how do you deal with the cross-border implications of uh, cybersecurity awareness? For instance, you can't just take uh, a solution from the U.S. and then, no. you know, implement it in Burkina Faso. I mean, no, you cannot. What, what are some of the challenges that, that, that you've observed in just the uh, international uh, barriers. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think the obvious ones are f- like physical barriers to start with, right? I mean, there are places where there is no real good um, legal infrastructure to say who owns what side of what border. So, like a physical border. So, there are times when, you know, the work these UN groups do to go in and help refugees or whatever, the first thing is who owns the technology and who, where are you? I mean, like, we've actually. I've been involved in projects where they send drones out to try and delineate where the physical boundaries are. And that's before you talk about the laws that they may or may not have governing what's cybercrime and what's not cybercrime. So, I mean, that's probably like an extreme example of it. But it's also that, you know, the laws, it's, it's definitely most of the rest of the world, they like to take their lead from the U.S. So they like to look at NIST standards and they will do a, their version of GDPR, right? So the so the UN organization is exempt from a lot of the US-centric regulations. So they're not beholden to GDPR. For example, the UN has their own framework that they use for privacy and data protection. That's right. Most people don't understand that. Um, and they do mimic a lot, but they have to make allowances for multicultural variances of it. Um, and it's not just the technology is a challenge. So like you mentioned how security is like holistic. It has to be a holistic um, because you're dealing with cultures that will create risks that you would never even have thought of, like, you know, in, in, in the United States of America. So if the culture is to not be on film or to not take pictures for like I've been some places where I've been told, put the camera away because there's, you know, some evil spirit in it. Like it's think, really think about <laughs> how do you, how do you secure that? And then if we talk about like the UN organizations, they don't really have trade secrets. You know, their biggest risks are reputational ones. They have secrets for sure. <laughs> they, have, they have some really scary ones, but they're not trade secrets. It's not like their business model. That's their differentiator. If something goes wrong, they, you know, they're going to, they're going to have access to the private secrets of some of the different countries that are party to this, you know, UN family. So there's also that. That's interesting. That makes that, that, that's interesting. You know, that kind of bring, brings up a question because uh, I've, I've become aware uh, of the fact that uh, when it comes to compromises to security or, or even crime in the nonprofit community, uh, there's a, a, a greater fear of reputational risk. Uh, just this is exact example. I, I know of a situation where um, uh, someone was embezzling 
funds uh, from a, a nonprofit. And rather than risking that information uh, getting out that uh, their donations were being stolen by an insider, uh, they just fired, quietly fired the person and moved on and didn't want any, anyone to, uh, to see it. Uh, the same thing kind of happens in cybersecurity, where uh, the fear of their breach being seen by others is greater uh, than really the, their concern over what was actually breached or what was actually compromised. Is that something that you, uh, that you were kind of alluding to there? So, yeah. So that's, that's very true. I think that's probably true outside of you and organizations and inside, depending on what is stolen and, you know, if your business is high tech and you're Amazon or something, you really don't want to talk about breaches, but definitely a nonprofit. That's very true. They, it wouldn't surprise me to hear stories that people were not, you know, that, that information that was published was not brought forward, but quietly handled. Um, there's a lot of different types of risks. So we talk reputational risk, but if I could just like bring that down to what that really means. So some of the international organizations, for example, they're responsible for taking care of refugees and those locations are highly secret, right? So there's sometimes when you can't, you can't divulge where refugee camps are or where families are for political, um, you know, and physical safety reasons. Um, but they have phones, right? And they have Facebook and they have, so, I mean, just imagine your eyes are opening. So like, imagine what that would be like <laughs> try, trying to manage risk of that nature and where families sometimes are one place. <laughs> and so that's just like, you know, like really one example, but then on the back end, so like at the business level, how do you explain reputational risk? Like financial risk is already, I mean, I would, could sit here and argue with you that a lot of that's quantitative, qualitative stuff is subjective already. That's before we talk about the risk of my reputation that I can't put a dollar to, right? But the organizations are accepting risk often that they don't understand. They don't understand the value of the reputational risk. They know the risk to their jobs, right? And maybe their families and their, you know, if they lose their job, but do they really understand? And sometimes they're taking risk on behalf of the organization that's reputational risk. And it's really hard um, to quantify. So like, those are just some of the challenges. And I think it's what I like best. It's not just straight techie stuff, although I do love techie stuff. And that's kind of where I started. I did malware investigations and stuff like that was my, before I realized that it was a little bit better for me to work on the preventative side or try to work on the preventative side than the side that keeps you up half the night, you know, fixing problems. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I do virus team in 24 hour and I just got old and said, let's, let's let some younger people do this, do this stuff. Yeah, right. Gotcha. So it's kind of interesting. You, you, you come with a wealth of uh, experience there. Well, g give us a war story. G give us the, one of the, uh, the more interesting uh, things that you, that you've come across. Uh, obviously we'll, uh, we'll avoid any specific names or anything like that, but just, uh, a scenario that, that you saw that, that that was interesting. So I've got so many and most of them I can't tell you. I will, I can tell you, <laughs> I guess I can tell you the ones that were on Fox News because they were on Fox News. Um, we have had, so, so the world, the World Bank, for example, operates more like a university than a business, right? So they're, they gather a lot of information. Their, their mission and their mandate is to end poverty. 
um, so which is huge and ginormous and unwieldy, um, to over 250 member states. I think that number is correct. It changes. Um, but, you know, there's there was a time when I, we walked into work, all of us did, and there was Fox News and CNN. And like we did we didn't even understand what was going on. We were just sort of, you know, accosted. And it was we understand that there's this big, huge, ginormous leak that happened. And all of this information has been put on uh, some I'm going to say South African, although I'm pretty sure that's not correct on purpose. So South African website and all these details are leaked. Um, and it was the first time that for me, I had ever seen <laughs> high executive people walk, you know, like these organizations, they they operate. We call them dinosaurs for real because the people that work there work there for many years. I was there for 22 years before I retired. Um, but most people had been there their entire careers and they moved from other countries. So they are here with their families. They're embedded in, you know, in, in the United States. So losing, you know, jobs and things like that, that's like a big thing. That's all uprooting. Um, so that would say that was probably one of the worst working days ever. Um, you know, everybody's covering themselves. Nobody's at fault. We're not getting anywhere with what the actual problem was. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's not like really horrible. But for me, I, I remember that clearly. Those days were terrible. It was like a week. We weren't allowed to talk to anybody. You know, we had police escorts in and out of the IMF building. and the, So it, for, for me, that was like a big, a big eye opener to what could really happen. And like I said, the, these UN and the nonprofits, they house so much information. I mean, if you look at the news right now and you're looking at what's going on, for example, in Russia and Ukraine, UN organizations are the ones that are going in and they're saying this nuclear facility is now safe. This, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of sort of scary things that could happen if, uh, you know, if, if we're, if we're not careful. Yes, absolutely. Uh, now it's, it's interesting. Uh, something I always notice and always think about when it comes to, um, major incidents like that is you know it makes for strange bedfellows so to speak okay. uh, when, we're, when we're in the cybersecurity business we want to prevent those things but typically those sorts of events are a boon to our business because that's, that's the right. only that's time necessary. everyone wakes up and says oh Correct. this is actually something we really need to put on budget this is something we really need to give more attention to Correct. Uh, this is something that we can't just sleep uh, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, a weird, you know, uh, relationship between uh, those who want to and those who are causing it. Uh, we actually really thrive <laughs> in an environments where they do what they do. Uh, well, there's it's a tightrope. There's a tightrope balance to it, because what I will say is and I say this when I get to speak about cybersecurity, but if it's done well, I've been in organizations where it's not done well at all. It's just a mess. Sure. And I've been in organizations where it's done almost textbook. Those are really interesting ones. But when it's done that well, nobody hears a thing. It's when there's a problem, right, that you actually understand there's something going on. So I will agree with you. And I'll tell you the other thing I learned. Um, I do a lot of coaching of CIOs, especially ones that come outside of the UN infrastructure into nonprofit, because there's a, there's a shell shock for them. So I'm really good at introducing them to how it's a different, it's a, it's a university-like environment and that sort of thing. But one of the things that I always talk about is how important it is to not try and get around audits, to not try and, you know, you sometimes it takes 
a really bad incident or exposure to get something fixed. There isn't anything better for a budget, a CISO's budget, than if there's a hit somewhere. Then all of a sudden they want to buy insurance. They want to lock the doors. They want to, you know, they don't want to do um, personal devices, you know. So you usually get, and, and I teach this. I really do. I coach. What's the last horrible thing that's happened? Let's talk about that. If we're going to go and talk to the committees to get funding, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how bad it could have been. Let's like expostulate what that would look like had you not had these controls in place. So um, the teaching side of cyber is instrumental if you're clever in making sure that your front face with the executives isn't always bad. And it can you can leverage and use that sort of the proactiveness of the last thing. Um, it also works well if you take, you know, some other organization that got hit bad and yours didn't talk about the controls you want to put in place and sometimes you can get buy-in so yeah. that's actually always- something yeah that, I, I agree with you completely that's actually something that, that i use you know uh, yeah the, the old expression uh, uh experience is your best teacher uh, i always like to twist it and say someone else's experience is your best teacher your best teacher <laughs> absolutely so if we can capitalize on what's in the news and 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 what's um you know uh an event of something that happened some other cio or C- ceo that got fired because of of, of negligence in their cybersecurity uh, precautions, yeah. then, then that's actually definitely something. Uh, what, what are some things that, that you'd like to do? Because, you know, some countries uh, definitely have a more regulatory framework, a mindset, uh, and other uh, organizations, you know, they, they don't really have a lot of regulations in their country and their whole background is just do whatever works. So how do you help to uh, foster uh, a... Um, a cybersecurity mindset uh, with some of your international customers that may not necessarily come from uh, that way of thinking. So I embrace that. So like, you know, I mentioned, I said at heart, I'm really a technocrat. I, I think technology is amazing and where technology and security mesh, the, the space where they, they mesh, I need to give that like a techtopia or so I need to like can a phrase. But what I mean to say is like where, so for example, when, when authentication, when passwords start coming out, way early on devices and we were doing passwords and I had my Palm Pilot or whatever, I remember we were talking about biometrics then. And people were saying crazy things like, you're going to find out I've got diseases by scanning my eyes and all that. You know, they were just totally against it. But as devices and the technology started to improve, people didn't want to be bothered with remembering passwords. Suddenly biometrics was a savior. Same thing they were fighting about. So, you know, you look at Uh, You know, you look at the way the work needs to get done. Most of these organizations, the cyber folks forget business has to go on. And in some cases, you can't do tons of restrictions. If we say nobody's allowed to have mobile devices, half of the African clients can't work because a lot of them, that's the only way they can connect. So my, my, my advice to say is, okay, so how are they working? What are they doing? Let's try and support the way they work with security. And if we can mesh it with our infrastructure, then, then that works well. I, I like frameworks. I, I'm, not, I'm not sold that they work on a real level as much as I, I think, you know, I think they're necessary because everybody won't behave themselves and, <laughs> and do with, you know, the right thing. There's always these rules come, but I also know that when you layer them in, people will teach to the test. They will, they will, you know, do, do a lot of let's do what we need to do to get past this audit, to, to get the certification, et cetera, when the real heart of the problems don't really get addressed. 
So I would say, you know, if you've got a mobile workforce and they like the tools they like, let them use the tools they like. Set up MDM or whatever you need to do to try and make it more secure. Teach them that, you know, their physical safety may be on the line or something like that. But where you can give them the opportunity. People work really well when they can work how they they work best and not that we try and fit them into the mold. And so that's why sometimes I think the frameworks, you know, can be can be not counterproductive is what I would say. So I do you're try. Really talk, you're really talking our language there. I was, having, <laughs> yeah, I, I was just having a conversation with a customer just this morning uh, about basically that same point. You know, the the idea of creating checklists and, and then having people just write to the checklist or, or build to the checklist uh, is, is not actually security at all. We're ignoring uh, the real thing in in pursuit of paper. But um, so, yeah, you're you're really talking yep. that language. I mean, yeah, but you have to actually build architectural frameworks. You have to yep. actually build security architecture in the way you implement your technology to do it. Um, we just had a recent conversation about um, uh, bring your own device, BYOD. Yep. And uh, you mentioned that to, uh, to people that are used to a, a single, simple, one-way approach of cybersecurity, yeah. and it's anathema. It's, it, it sounds horrible to them. Yeah. But if you actually look at, okay, what does that mean? Let's take that incrementally. Um, can we implement more of a zero-trust architecture that would allow for endpoint weaknesses right. uh, without compromising the overall system? Yeah, you can do that. You can build to the reality. Yep. Instead of forcing the reality to some arbitrary rules. So, yeah, you're, right. you're, you're talking my language there. And also, so, and then take all of your money and hire the most brilliant security architect you can find. Not these ones that come, I mean, I'm, and I'm not, you know, I want to be clear, but there's a lot of them that's got these, you know, they look real good on paper. Get a brilliant security architect. Brilliant. Somebody who cares a little bit about business too, because availability is part of security and nobody thinks about that until there's like a website down or something, you know, suddenly mm -hmm. we're all, Going, how am I going to get paid? Yep. You know what I mean. So I think brilliant. You know I work with a, some brilliant security architects, and they yeah. are very. Let's enable the business. Let's understand it, and let's enable it. There yeah. are people who are bridges. I like to think of myself as in that space more than my value to technically do something. Right? I can code if you make me, but I, I don't want to do that. I'm better at saying, what are you trying to do? And how do you like to do it? And let's build a security framework around that. And let's map it up to this framework and say, okay, this works. This is going to work. This is going to gonna really work. Um, and I think that's just a better appro approach than, than others. But that's where I think you'd spend the money. These texts come and go. And, and right now it's, you know, I mean, in the beginning, there were, these certification programs weren't there. I remember I got my CISSP because somebody said I couldn't. And then after that, I, I couldn't have cared less about it. I just, I just wanted to work. I wanted you to put me in front of a computer and let's work this out. Um, but, you know, that's a whole other story. But I think security architecture is a really good place. Business risk people, those are like, that's where you spend your money on these people. They're going to save you a lot of heartache. Um, with this whole mentality that, oh, but the framework says, and I used to be an auditor for one of the top consulting firms. I've worked with the best there is. I, I really have. We brought them in. I've hired them. I've worked on projects with them. They come from really great schools. And then if, and if you were to throw them in a real world problem, I, they, would have, they would have trouble. You know, yeah. they would struggle a bit. 
Yeah, th- yeah, that's a really good argument against relying solely on frameworks uh, yes. in any space, because you often get people that are constructing operations to meet the checklists that fit the framework, right. and that impacts business operations pretty negatively. And we run into that all of the time, yes. where we have to balance, you know, mission criticality, right? Getting somebody to do the job they're supposed to do versus actually securing the environment which they're trying to do the job. Right. And and so one plug, I mentioned the consultants, but McKinsey is, is also one of the big ones. I, I have to say this for them. They probably spent more time than I've ever seen any big consulting firm just understanding the business before they come in. Typically, these guys come in with their checklist. They haven't heard you. They don't know what the work is. They don't know, you know. I will say McKinsey was good at that. Um, so if you've got a billion dollars to pay them to come in and <laughs> work with you, <laughs> I'm just, I'm keeping it real and they know, they know, but you know, yeah. but other than that, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You said something that it, it just, it makes me chuckle because, um, you know, you know I, t- I teach a lot of introduction to cybersecurity type classes or, or the CISSP uh, certification course and, and whatnot. And so we always talk about the security triad, you know, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And it's funny, I, I always take a moment uh, and ask my students, but they're usually already cybersecurity professionals. I, I usually just take a moment and ask them, which of the three is most important? Confidentiality, integrity, or availability? And it, it's funny, yes, you'll have that. people going on and on about integrity or on and on about confidentiality. Everybody says confidentiality, right? <laughs> and and that is, that's a simple question. Who spends millions and millions of dollars just to hide the information. No, <laughs> you spend millions and millions of dollars to access the information. Availability is uh, the under undercurrent of everything. Without and availability, you know, th- there's nothing to make confidential or, or to maintain integrity on. So the idea of making the business impact uh, front and center is so, so important and it's so right. often missed by a lot of cybersecurity folks. So, and, it again, is, and, and it is a problem. It's the problem with, so I... I spend time communicating with CIOs. The ones that are techies are difficult. I will tell you, the ones that come from the business that need to understand just like fundamentals of security and CIA and a few, they're easier to work with. The techies are harder to work with because their mind isn't, they're not, you know, business people are just totally different personalities and they look at things differently. They look at challenges and problems and they look at opportunities. They're not looking at, you know, all this restriction is what I'm trying to say. And it's really hard. You can, you hire these cybersecurity people and it's really, it's difficult to to have them understand bottom line, the work needs to get done or even like opportunities. So like what I was saying about, um, you know, about access, it's like there are opportunities we're missing here. When they, when we, if we say work how you want to work, um, we're we're looking to see, so we want to do classification. So, for example, we want to um, put together a classification structure. But instead of saying, here's what we have, we have secret, top secret, and this, turn on some DLP and take a look at what they're doing. Look at where the data is flowing. Look at what what they're doing with what. Then get a sense of how they work. Then build your classification structure. That works better. It works a lot better than trying to fit things into the mold. Availability is, is hyper important in that instance because what I've learned just from that, that my work doing um, doing classification schemas and data privacy is 
people are making everything super secret because they don't understand what the classification schemas are because we threw it at them and we didn't first look at how they work. But we've got technology that can help us do that to see where they're, you know, do I need to tell them to stop forwarding stuff to their email? Are they even doing that? I mean, like those those types of things to kind of take some time to get to know what the business is doing. That's not really what techs do. And so that is a little bit harder to sell than getting a business well, person to talk about cyber. Techies are always enamored with technology. I mean, we it's, are. It's, it's, give we me are. a button. Give me a, give me a widget. Give That's me why they like confidentiality because crypto is really cool. Like, I mean, really. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I didn't care about the rest of that test. I just wanted to do it. You know, that's yeah. cool stuff. Crypto is cool. It sounds cool. cool. I mean, like I said, what is cool? Crypto. You know? It does. You sound like you're a real serious uh, black hat if you know crypto. But here's the truth of it. All these big incidents, go find the people person part. It's right in there. I sit and yeah. talk. So I listen. You know, I like I said, I do a lot of talking and, and it's always these tech people that come up and usually some non-cyber person who wants to be cyber that knows something and they'll challenge me. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, they did. That's really cool. Did you see that person that literally told the guy his password? That, now talk to me about that. How do you stop that without an educated workforce, without people understanding the risk of, you know, don't keep this guy's account open eight months because he went home for leave and maybe he won't come back. You know what I mean? Like, that's what's happening. It's, I mean, I well, like that's where framework actually comes in handy, right? Yes. <laughs> that's the kind of, yes. yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting feel. I love it. I, um, I, I'm more enamored, like I said, with the tech part. AI is really exciting to me. I really want more time to sit and look at as I, but I don't want it for cyber. I want AI to make my life easier, you know? So like, I don't have to think about the, it's like, I don't, I want, I want, um, access control that says, she likes to turn on her computer at eight and listen to like Bon Jovi or something. And that's her. I like that kind of AI stuff to me is kind of cool. And that's helpful to me. I'm Google's done that all day already. <laughs> I know. Just open up YouTube. On, on your, I know. Uh, you yeah. they, what is it? Five clicks. I think five clicks that can figure out exactly what user you are. Right. Yeah. Or less. Yeah. I mean, we are our creatures. Five or that less, that. Yeah. Our brains are set up that way. So let's yeah. like, yeah. Let's do that. Let's know that I need to order paper towels on Tuesday. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> then I can spend more time playing with Mandalorian toys, you know, or something. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Let's talk about something else, though. Because uh, in, in, in your international work, uh, you're dealing with all these different le levels of uh, technology and technical infrastructure. I mean, it, you know, what you have and what you can rely on in, in Western Europe versus what you can rely on in Sub-Saharan Africa is, is, is night and day. So how, how do you broach those re realities of technical uh, differentials in the environments of your uh, customers? So first of all, I'm like a really good student. So I do tons and tons of research. So I will research what the local, you know, like I want to understand not just what the guidelines that are applied to this particular area, but what, where those touch points hit the, the organization, like where that's going to really matter. And I do tons and tons of research. So I, you know, I, and I'm, I'm organized. That's like, I want to tell you that I'm brilliant and I'm going to remember all of who's doing what it's a lot to manage at times. It really is. I have to remember, do I talk GDPR or am I talking infrastructure of privacy data protection principles? Like I have to keep switching. So it's a challenge for me, but here's the nice thing. I can take the wonderful what's working from NIST 
and what's really working from ENISA or some of these other standards. And I can say, you know what they're doing over here? It's not part of your framework, but you might want to consider it. It works well. So I can bring, you know, I can, I can again, be like a bridge and say, these are some principles that might work for you. Maybe we can do that and tie this into what you're already doing. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to keep track of it. And then things are changing. I'm not a law expert. I do have friends that that are brilliant in this. So every now and then I make a phone call and say, hey, you work with this group. What's happening there? Um, where it applies a lot, Mike, is um, in procurement areas a lot. So maybe not the organization, but the organization's interface with somebody's brother's uncle in an area that they need to build a bridge and there's no real laws on business licenses or privacy or, you know, there's there's loosey-goosiness there about, about yeah. what is allowed and what's not allowed. And so how do you, you know, how do you, and to be quite honest, there are many organizations that don't, they don't have framework. I mean, they're not really, they're not operating off frameworks. A lot of the NGOs are, are like that. They're, 10 really zealous people that are trying to make something happen and they're interfacing with a big, you know, a big group like maybe the IMF or the IFC or something. And they're trying to like get some water to some kids at a school, you know, or something like that. So it's a challenge. It's just, I'm, I'm really how, how you, studious. And then that, 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 that raises a really interesting uh, point. How do you get around, you know, supply chain risk management in areas that are like that? Um, how do you actually address that? You don't. Um, so, and, and if, I mean, that's, yeah, you don't. yeah. I mean, that's the nature so of it, yeah. let me tell you the biggest, I think the biggest, um, example of explaining supply chain risk is this pandemic. And it's a, it's a non-technical application to say, do you understand what when we've got all our eggs coming from this place and these five truck companies are all sick. I mean, that's a really, that's something that I could use to explain supply chain risk. Sometimes you can't get around it. I mean, like there's nothing you, mm. you know, you, you do what you can. Um, and like I said, there, there's a lot of business that's being done in areas where if you physically need to get into a place, it's literally somebody's uncle. Like I'm, I'm joking, but I'm really not. So you know, you, you, like I said, you, you do what you can, but um, in a lot of areas, it's just kind of like diligence. Um, I also go back to really good people. I, I, I think we, you know, we overlook good quality staff and I know that it's really hard. This, I'm going to put in my shameless plug for women right now um, to say that when I first started in cybersecurity, I was the only woman of color, I think at all, in a team of about 20 for many years. And then women started to kind of get involved. But I think you need a varied mentality for security to work well, because the issues come up weirdly and not always in the structured way. And so, you know, women and men think differently. We look at problems differently and we see risk kind of differently. So I also think that the people that are involved in running your cyber security should not all look like the same thing. They shouldn't all think the same. They should be thinking, wait, is this a single point of failure? If we're all putting, you know, we're all, and there's a lot of it now, like just there's, you know, 10 really big cybersecurity companies um, or tech providers that if something went wrong, what are all of us going to do? I mean, I know we're dispersed, but are we, you know, so, <laughs> so. That's something to think about. Well, yeah. I tell you, Monica, that'll keep you up. Great. It's been really great having you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Got to get you back, uh, and 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 more than just talking 
talking about your your practice. Um, just talk about anything in cyber because we talk about all things cyber on this channel. Yeah, so, good. Uh, Got to get you back. This has been great. I appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. It's nice to sit and do shop talk. You know, I don't get <laughs> to do. It. <laughs> I enjoy shop talk. I do. So it's been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to our special guest, Monica Price, for coming on on the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel for more content just like this. We've got a lot coming out your way. And don't forget, stay safe, be secure, be sure. We'll see you next time.